Welcome to episode 366 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. This week we feature a great conversation with New York City-based director, writer, cabaret critic, and activist Jerry Geddes. We talk with Mr. Geddes as he is holed up in his Harlem home. Uh, we reflect on how the virus is affecting New York City, the arts in particular. We talk about cabaret and Broadway and uh, some great stories he shares regarding his friendship with the wonderful icon and jazz music Sarah Vaughan. Among other things, Sondheim, of course, is brought up as well. You know, Dr. Pavise wants the Sondheim focused on. By the way, Dr. Pavise shares a piece, uh, an original, titled The Lonesome Cowboy Episode 2. We heard episode 1 uh, maybe a month or two back. And this, again, will be performed by actor Dominic Azzarelli. We have an EWSA called Sarah Sings and a poem called Black Cosmic Friend. And all of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it then. Episode 366 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
sings. I am unsure of where this thing is going, though I know my right shoulder hurts deep in its joints and ligaments. It kind of keeps me focused. My breathing seems more shallow than normal, and I worry about all of the ibuprofen I've been taking. It is the middle of April, and last night one half inch of snow fell from the sky. The spring green grass pokes through like a vibrant, organic plume of innocence, kissing the cold breeze that twiddles the white birch trees on Hickory Lane. I hear the squawks of geese in the background, along with the hum off the turnpike bridge. Oh, in this moment to live, to take from it, to give, I am cynical, angry, I judge, I forgive, as if my consciousness really matters much. As fleeting as the small accident of strangers' touch when we passed one another in the not-so-distant past, on our way within the open country, toward the excitement and promises which emanated from the human bombast, as another exploration of living cradles us in what we perceive as our interval of time, our place, our space. And is this the best we could do, me and you? As Sarah Vaughan makes a great chili and sometimes gets you stoned too, send in the clowns, yet later still, happiness abounds. Let's get us a drink Listen, smarty Don't tell him what you really think Think of your career And tell him what you think He wants to hear Your taciturn now, wouldn't you rather earn some brownie points saying the appropriate things? Suck up like a good little guest, praises in order, best to lay it on thick before the fat lady sings. Uh. 
I advise from first-hand experience that mighty old egos like his expect to be fluffed. So please unbite your tongue, sir, and while the night is young, sir, come up with something or your goose will be stuffed. Tell him he's eloquent, tell him his opinion has meant more to the masses than the prose of Gibran. Hang on his every word, pretend you have never heard a soul who was wittier, and try not to yawn. Yes, I know, you think he's an imbecile, but one next from him could kill your corporate plan. Don't assume I mislead you, don't you the hands that feed you, swallow your pride, he's such a powerful man. Yes, you're choking on every syllable, but you can dish out the bull if anyone can. Trust me, this way is better. Sure, there are Irish setters smarter than him, but he's a powerful man. Hello. Hello, Jerry Geddes. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Greetings from isolation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Greetings from isolation. It's nice to have you back on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And, uh, it's nice ahead. to be back. Oh, thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Um, some folks, I'm sure, have heard our first conversation, but for those who have not, let me give them a little background about you, okay? Okay, yep. Jerry Geddes has conceived and directed a number of musical reviews, including The Bistro and Mac Award-winning Monday in the Dark with George, and put on your Saturday suit, Words and Music by Jimmy Webb. Jerry is also the director and sometimes host of Pangea Restaurant and Cabaret's fabulous First Friday in Manhattan's East Village. He has directed many cabaret artists, including Broadway star Andre De Shields, Helen Baldessari, Darius Dihaz, and drag artist Julia Van Cartier. Jerry directed the David Drumgold Variety Show in residence at the Manhattan Movement and Arts Center and has produced a number of recordings, including two bistro-winning CDs. He's taught vocal performance at the New School, NYU, and London's Goldsmiths College and continues to conduct private workshops and master classes. Jerry is currently completing a memoir about his life in the city. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have back on the program Jerry Geddes. Yeah. Thank you. I should mention, too, you're an activist. I think I find, based on a lot of the things I read, that um, you post on social media because we're friends in various venues. Yes. Uh, I would say you're a director, a writer, a cabaret critic, and an activist, too. Um, I keep my finger in that, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I can't help it. It just happened, but yes. Uh, well, spe especially given today's circumstances, you know, uh, uh, you, you can't help but push back, right? And we'll get into that, I'm sure. But um, let's talk about the, I guess, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic to a certain yeah. extent. How, the effect, the the virus, the pandemic, the isolation, as you mentioned, is having on the arts in in, uh, in New York City in particular. Well, New York City in particular and the performing arts in particular, and particularly a fragile art like cabaret, which is where I spend most of my time, or even jazz. Um, I think one of the main concerns is the survival of the clubs 
themselves, the physical spaces. Because while a restaurant can kind of survive with takeout and things like that, these clubs are not set up as restaurants in that way. They're, they have food as a, an addendum to their reason for being, but it's not what they're about. And so uh, most of them are just shut down. And it's the longer it takes to get back to normalcy, the more fragile their lives become. Yeah, well, I mean, you're affiliated with uh, Pangea in the yes. East Village. Uh, you uh, direct the cabaret program there. Various, and I am I am the host there now permanently. It's not temporary, but yes. Oh, well, you're the host there for, as well. for the for the show that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, is that Fabulous Fridays we're talking about, or is that yes, yes, Fabulous First Fridays? Yes. Uh, so you probably are aware of how difficult uh, times are economically. Uh, be, given that, I mean, a big part of the income for Pangea is the restaurant, right? Yes, but, and, and a big uh, draw for the clientele of the restaurant are the shows that they put on. Right. So so they've lost on both ends because the performance has ended, plus they're not allowed to open the doors to serve food. So <sighs> and It's I, very precarious. It, it uh, is. A lot of the performers there, um, I would suggest to the listeners that um, – they check out if they have a club that they like or they've heard about like Pangea, they should go to their websites because a lot of performers are donating uh, streaming videos of performances that they've done at the clubs for a minimal charge that then is bequeathed to the club by the performer. And yeah. so they're helping out in that way. And that's fantastic uh, because they themselves are having a difficult time. I'm sure the artists. Yes. But if their venues do not exist, then when this is all gone, they won't have anywhere to perform either, I suppose. Correct. Yes. Uh, and on top of it, I, I would also bet that they just love the culture. You know, I mean, Pangea, for oh, example. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right? Iconic places yeah. that have a long history. They, they're the center point, the, the uh, incubator of so much of, of uh, the, the culture, the art, arts culture. Well, also, with a club like Pangea, it's so personally involved with the community that it literally is a, the center of a family that is no longer allowed to meet. <laughs> uh, so there's a real loss there as well. Yeah, by the way, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, wanted me to make sure he uh, shared with you and uh, all of your, your friends and associates in, in the world of cabaret and at Pangea his support, and he can't wait to get back out there. That's where I met him, actually, was at Pangea. So, yes. Well, you know, our show nice. has really yeah. benefited from, from what you have there. I mean, we've had uh, uh, Rob Roth on the show, uh, Peter mm -hmm. McGough, uh, Jody Morlock, and all those folks hang out at Pangea. Yes, and the owner you've had on, too. So oh, the owner as well. That I forgot. Yes, yeah. Uh, how could I forget? That was a wonderful conversation. Yes. How's he doing? Um, as well as can be expected, but it's, it's tough times. Now, when, when you... Um, Think about all the artists you cross paths with uh, and, and what sort of makes them feel alive, I suppose, is, is, the, is the human connection. You yourself, I'm sure, the human connection. How, how I mean, we all need that. I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. the nature of being a human being, the, the healthy ones at least, right? Yes. Uh, what are you noticing or can you surmise what's, what sort of uh, – uh, burden or difficulty artists are having not being able to go out and express and connect? Well, 
in some ways, except even communication between me and the artists that I'm friends with or, or have known forever uh, is severely curtailed. You know, we can we can we can text and we can talk, but it's there's no community. There's no um, direct physical communication. It's it's an odd, weird moment in time. Do you think people are singing to themselves in the mirror or out their windows? Like it's oh yes, and, and posting things and and doing things to keep it going. But it's it's not the same, obviously. And and one thing to to keep in mind, not a necessarily happy thing, is that I'm not sure how quickly after whatever ends ends, the people are going to embrace going out and being in crowds. Exactly. Because it's not going to end everywhere at the same time. And even if New York decides that it's time for the doors to open and to go back out into the world, there's it's still going to be happening in other places in the country that are behind the schedule that New York has been on. So it's theater, movies, uh, clubs, cabarets, restaurants. I, I think it's going to be a very slow process to, to try to get back to whatever normalcy we might get back to. I think so, too. And also, even when New York deems itself ready and, and safe, other folks might wait a while to come. Yes. Just to be safe. Yeah. Um, yeah, it concerns That's me. To, that, the thing about uh, cabaret, in, <clears throat> in particular in New York, is it tends to be a locally supported art, whereas Broadway and even major concerts tend to be tourist-driven. So I think there'll be a speedier return to clubs getting audiences than there will be Broadway or clubs, something like that. Yeah, that does bode well for you to a certain extent. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and it probably is going to be so important to the healing and reconnection of, of the community, getting back out there and seeing, there you are, I haven't seen you in a while, let's, let's yes, perform. Yes, exactly, yes. And also, having been deprived of it, it might increase the support of it. Yeah. Because you, they'll realize how fragile and how important it is. Right, right. They won't take it for granted, so to speak. Exactly, Yes. Uh, yeah, that's one of the good things. I mean, we're losing a lot of good people. We, we're we're, divi we're divided as a nation because of poor leadership, uh, and and uh, you know, a mis poor is a, poor is a, <laughs> a very understated word. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to be. You know, I'm not trying no, to. Be, I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, I I I mean, I think our president is a buffoon. I'm not afraid to say that. I just I don't want to cuss. You know. Yes. Um, no. I understand. <laughs> But how, how are you? How are you? Uh, what's your take on the way Mayor De Blasio and Governor Cuomo are handling things? Well, certainly, at least in contrast, they're brilliant compared to what we're getting federally. Um, I, I wish they were more on the same page. You mean? I, I wish, you mean uh, uh, the they, mayor and the governor? Yeah, there are differences they have in in the way to you know financial financial response and physical response to what's happening, but I'm not sure there's a, a blueprint that anyone can literally follow. So, but they are certainly uh, more communicative, more trustworthy, more honest and more informative than anything that we're getting from Washington at all. Yeah. Unless you so say, I, I think, I think the Washington stuff is actually dangerously misleading and, and I wish it wasn't given as much um, hype as it's given. Because it's 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 devolved into a 
a basically a campaign rally every day that he's getting free publicity for, which infuriates me. But yeah, I I agree, and I think that's the main concern coming from uh, him is is his reelection, not not the health of our nation. I think that's been his concern since the first day he took office. But that's yes. Yeah. So yeah. the mayor and the governor of New York, the mayor of New York City and the governor of New York, much better uh, in. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And when when you look at, <clears throat> excuse me, when you look at um, your your again personal relationships, uh, your your uh, professional relationships in in the city, um, are they uh, are they how should I say, be becoming more of a lifeblood to you than they were before in a way? Are, are you relying on, uh, I'm, I'm not sure of your personal situation, if you're home yeah. alone, you know, or if you have somebody that you're isolated with, because uh, I know no, I'm, I'm alone. I'm alone. Yes. So I would think unless you feel very comfortable in solitude day in and day out, you rely a little bit more uh, than you would otherwise on your friends and associates to keep your sanity. Sure. Yes, it's it's absolutely true. But um, it's odd because the the forms of communication we're forced to embrace in this situation underline the fact that we're losing so much of the personal commitment and connection that we have. You know, even the the best phone call is not sitting down and having a drink and talking to a friend. It's just not the same thing. No, no. There's, there's the physical communication is a big part of it, but probably bigger than anyone thought. And and do you think we're realizing that? Is that maybe another plus that we're? I I, I hope, but I think it's a plus that I maybe if I could forgo the negative, I forgo the plus. <laughs> of course, if you know what I mean. That, yeah. You know, I don't think it's a. I think it's looking for a plus to try to get through some of the madness that's going on. But, uh, yeah, maybe when all is yeah. done, we'll we'll have a better sense of how important personal relationships are. Though yes. you know how we are, we forget six months after it's done. We'll yes. probably go back to our old bad ways. I, not to be cynical, but yeah. Now talking about some friends, I, this gives me a nice transition. One of your really, yes. <laughs> to me, sure. b- being a huge jazz fan. Uh, uh, an impressive friend that you had, Sarah Vaughn. Yes. Last time we spoke, you teased us just at the end of the conversation. <laughs> it just kind of slipped out at the end of the conversation, yes. So can you tell us more about your relationship with Sarah Vaughn? Sure. Um, well, first of all, let me um, set a bit of history before it. When I first got my first record player, when I was maybe nine or ten from my parents, which was a little looked like a little suitcase, and it would open and there was a speaker in the top of the suitcase and then a, a turntable with a, a stylus or a, with a you know, stylus that would play the records. I got the, they gave me two albums with two LPs with the record player. And one was Frank Sinatra and one was Sarah Vaughan. And it was a Sarah Vaughan from Mercury, her Mercury years later when they kind of forced her to sing pop material. Mm-hmm. So she would sing things that were on the top 40, which were not necessarily the most uh, intelligent or esoteric things for her to be singing at the time. But, I mean, I loved her voice even then, singing Motown. And I remember the, one of my favorite tracks from that first CD, that uh, first album that was bought for me was um, 
uh, a pop song called Lover's Concerto, mm-hmm. uh, which you might, it opens with the line, how gentle is the rain. It was a kind of take on um, uh, a classical piece of music that was kind of lifted and sampled into a pop song. Uh, but I was so enamored of her voice and bought a few other LPs back then. And then when I came to New York uh, to go to Columbia, I uh, sought her out and saw her at the Blue Note. It was one of, She was one of the first singers I saw in New York. And seeing her live and starting to buy her actual jazz albums rather than her pop albums gave me a, um, a thrill like no other singer. She remains my absolute favorite singer. The only person that vies for that top position, and it depends on my mood and what's going on, is Carmen McRae, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who is slightly lesser known than Sarah because she didn't really have hits in the way that Sarah did, but uh, was a major, major performer. And I, I call Carmen the actress of jazz. She, if, if anyone phrased in the way an actress would phrase, it was Carmen, whereas Sarah kind of took Carmen's phrasing and Ella's breadth of musicality and puts them together so she was another creation all of her own and where where would let me interject for a second because this name yes. pops into my head where would you place billy holiday in that uh... immediately after but this is all personal you know it, 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 they could juggle back and forth but sarah and carmen stay at the top for me but but diana washington billy holiday ella are all kind of this second tier under that lofty celestial first tier for me uh, and then I met, I mentioned last time, a, a artist that I worked with for a number of years named Robert W. Richards, mm-hmm. who, who has a, uh, had a, uh, a kind of remarkable life of being a companion along with being a wonderful artist and, and, uh, in both, uh, in both fashion and in pop culture by being a companion at certain points of Dinah Washington and of Peggy Lee. And through them, he became very good friends with Sarah. And then I became very good friends with Robert. He was, I think I mentioned the last time, he was kind of my Uncle Maine. Mm-hmm. He showed me New York when I was young and just out of Columbia. So I was 20, 21. And uh, so I had seen Sarah a number of times, but he said, well, come and we'll hang out with her after. She was playing at the Maisonette, which was a wonderful club in the city in the days of nightclubs. And so we went, and then Sarah invited us. I met her, and I was tongue-tied in the back of the, <laughs> the club, just saying how wonderful I thought she was, and then she being very gracious, but at the same time very shy and kind of giggled and said, well, thank you very much. And then, and then she invited us up to her suite in the, in the hotel where the Maisonette was. And so it turned out it was just the band, the trio, which was uh, Carl Schroeder, who was a great pianist who I only know from Sarah, but played with many other people. Uh, a bass player, Andy Simpkins, and then a, a drummer, Walter Booker. And they had uh, dates with them. And then it was Robert, Sarah, and me, and we were all kind of sitting on the floor in the living room, just having wine and talking. And at one point, there was a lull in the conversation, and Sarah leaned, it was Sarah, then Robert, then me in the circle. And he, she leaned over and whispered in Robert's ear, and he laughed and said, oh, sure. So she got up and left, and I leaned over and said, she was looking at me when she talked to you. What was she saying? Did she want me to leave? Am I too, what's going on? <laughs> and so he said, no, 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 no. She just asked if you were old enough that she could bring out the marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you were about, you were 20. You were around yeah, 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And at that point, she appeared in the doorway with a little baggie in her hand and said, I hear we're all vipers in the room, so let's have some fun. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So we got stoned and talked about music, and it was an amazing evening. And so every time she would come to New York after that, we would hang out. Uh, We would go to the Blue Note, and she would rent a, a limo, and we would sit in the back of the limo, and we would stop by at Gray's Papaya on uh, St. Mark's Place or 8th Street and 6th Avenue and get hot dogs. And she'd have bottles of champagne in the back of the car. So we'd have hot dogs and champagne. And we would drive to a place like there was a uh, famous disco called the Limelight that was actually a deconsecrated church that had turned into this big, trendy, gothic kind of disco. And so she never would go in because it was a de- deconcentrated church and she thought she shouldn't go into it. Mm. But we would sit outside in the limo and watch the people go in. And she'd be fascinated by the costuming and the, the, the energy of all these people going into the club. And we'd just sit there and talk and have hot dogs in the back of the limo watching people go in. <laughs> she sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite times, we, she was playing at, the, at uh, Blues Alley in Washington. And uh, Robert and I went down for the weekend to stay with her at her the apartment where they had put her up for the weekend. And uh, she made a mean chili. So after the show, she uh, made us dinner. And then Sarah traveled with a sewing machine. And her relaxation was sewing. So Robert and I would sit on the couch and have champagne and talk about music with her. But at the, all the while, she was at the sewing machine sewing away. <laughs> Huh? <laughs> just keeping her other parts of her life up, up going. So, and she would give me hints of like saying, she would call me and say, you know, I'm singing the national anthem at the Mets game tomorrow in case she wanted to listen to it or tape it or do something like that. And, uh, and she would let me know what she was appearing on an album that wasn't in her own name. So I could keep track of those kinds of things. And, uh, we, we were friendly and friends and, uh, she was a wonderful person, very shy, uh, off stage. Yeah, she and, turned it on when she walked on stage, I suppose. Yes. Although she still had a kind of hesitant command of the stage. It wasn't like Liza Minnelli or Barbara Streisand stepping on stage. It was she was much more a musician with the other musicians. What what do you think was at the you know the essence of her art the way she expressed herself what 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 drove well, her well she was she was um I think she had to sing I mean that's that was her art and she had four octaves some some push it to five I'm not sure that's even possible but she had four octaves and she could pick any note of any octave to use at exactly the right moment and we could tell kind of um, First of all, she always kept one number, and it was My Funny Valentine, where they would not rehearse it. And she would just do it with the piano player. And they would feel, they would just kept it as the one moment that was completely spontaneous that night about how they were feeling, what was going on. So at times there would be a happy My Funny Valentine. At times there would be a crushingly sad My Funny Valentine. It would change with every performance because it would be the mood of that particular moment. And there aren't many singers who could get away with doing that. But when she would perform at like the Blue Note, I would see her two shows a night for five nights in a row. And every single time it was an entirely different interpretation of My Funny Valentine. And you could kind of gauge the kind of whether we were going to hang out afterwards or whether she was going to say, I'm going to go home and go to sleep afterwards from the way My Funny Valentine was done that night in the show. 
because it was a gauge of how she was feeling that day. All these years later, if you had to pick a tune to sit back and remember, Sarah Vaughan, which one would you play? Uh, um, well, I think there's a couple, but let me preface by a quick story. When she was recording for um, mainstream records, they were pushing a bit to get her into doing the pop material again after years of freedom of singing, you know, jazz standards and classic music. And they made her record Send in the Clowns right after Judy Collins did it. Mm -hmm. And they did it in a very up-tempo, poppy kind of innocuous way. The arrangement was not very good. And her voice still connected with the lyrics, but it was it was a real throwaway. So about a year later, Robert and she and I were sitting after a concert she did at Lincoln Center at a place called O'Neill's Balloon, which is no longer there, but was a great kind of hangout place after concerts. And she was saying, you know, I've been thinking about that song, Send in the Clowns. It kind of stuck with me, even though I didn't like that recording at all. I hate that record, but I can't get the song out of my head. Do you think I should do it again? And Robert and I almost leapt out of the chairs and said, yes, please, please revisit, revisit. And I'm not claiming responsibility for this because she was already in the plans of doing it when she brought it up to us. But from about a year later, her closing number was Send in the Clowns and brought literally brought the house down. And it became her standard after that in every single concert. I don't think she did a concert without it after that moment. And that remains one of the classic moments for me of her singing. But it never has been done in that way uh, in a recording. Uh, no. When it came her. time to be recorded, she was doing an album with Count Basie. So it became a horn-driven arrangement. It's still a very good arrangement, but it doesn't even approach what what it could be. There are some, there are some versions on YouTube that are, are well worth seeing. Uh, one of the things I was saying is that she would let me know when things happened that wouldn't be publicly released. And uh, she did an evening with the Boston Pops and John Williams. And the special guest was Wynton Marsalis. Mm. And so the three of them did um, did three songs together. The, the three of them, meaning the Boston Pops and Wynton and Sarah. Uh, and then at the end, she did to me, the most magnificent version of Sending the Clowns I've heard with, with all of those strings and John Williams' arrangement behind her. And uh, that's on YouTube. Oh, but, but at the time, they were both, all, all three were, uh, at least Winton and Sarah were recording for Sony, Columbia Records. And so they recorded it the evening to be released as a kind of duo album. And then the money people on all the sides kind of battled and fought and it eventually got shelved never to be released but she gave me a copy of it mm, wow and it's one of my treasured possessions it and, the be. and, and it's unedited in the sense that they had you know made it releasable so the end sending the clowns lasts about nine minutes mm -hmm. and then the applause after lasts about nine minutes wow <laughs> which they didn't enter they didn't edit down so it's just this incredible response that just goes on and on and on and on and on at the end of the album. And that's, uh, that's, that's, that's probably my favorite version of which of that song. Well, thank you for sharing that. What a great yes. story. Yeah. We're talking to Jerry Geddes here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. He's a director, cabaret critic, writer, activist, all around good 
person and artist living in New York City. What part of the city do you live in? I live in Harlem at the moment, actually, yes. And uh, before, I mean, we're almost done with this go-round. Uh, uh, so I want to make sure, otherwise Dr. Pavis, our associate producer, will be very upset with me. He wanted me to ask you, this is a question from him directly, about your uh, thoughts on Sondheim at 90. Well, they remain what they were, Sondheim at 70 and Sondheim at 50, that he's my favorite songwriter, composer of anyone ever. Uh, I have two favorites. Jimmy Webb is on the pop side and Sondheim is on the theater side. But uh, I've seen everything, I think, that he's done many, 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 many times. Uh, I would I would be back in the day when it was possible to get standing room for ten dollars. I would go to see things over and over, particularly his things. Why is he uh, so great, do you think? Why, why is he so much the, uh, the, the, the best of what has come out of Broadway over the last hundred years, maybe? Well, the, the intelligence, the passion, the, the, the statement of his art, the, person, the individuality of his art, that um, many people say that he's cold, but I think those are the people who don't dig up beneath the surface of what he does because his surface is very brittle and very, very contained and very intellectually monitored. But underneath the emotion to me becomes stronger because he has used all of those other elements to kind of mask it possibly, but reveal it in a more deep way for the people who want to work to, to listen to him. He's not, an easy uh an easy listen if you want to get all of sondheim the the listener the the audience has to work a bit but they're rewarded for that work with great great emotional treasures and that's how i feel about him and and lastly for this conversation because i'm i'm sure we're going to talk again uh if you're into it i'm totally into it sure uh, I want you to share with us how your memoir is going. Are you done with it yet? You I'm, I'm working on it in this time, actually. Uh, so I'm taking advantage of that. Uh, and also with the first Friday nights, I've been uh, doing a number of pieces from it to great success, actually, I'm happy to say, and humbled to say, uh, as, as spoken word pieces in the, in the course of the evenings. And I think it's unexpected to a lot of audiences that come to the show because they're expecting to come to a cabaret show and hear interpretations of songs, original songs, comedy, but they don't expect to hear history and, and personal legend. And so uh, I, they've been, the response has been spectacular so far. I'm really pleased with it. And so um, that's pushing me to, to write more, to finish it up. But I'm in a really difficult um emotional area of my life so this writing is a bit slower you mean the, it's difficult it's difficult to revisit the aids crisis which is where i am right now oh i got you so you're in that yeah. component that part uh, the, and uh, so i happen to be writing that in the midst of the new virus that is affecting the world it's a different thing but there are similarities hmm. to, and i think the loss is about to start being felt in ways that perhaps we felt during the aids crisis and no one else realized uh, I think the the deaths are going to start accumulating, you know, in 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 sad amounts across the country. Yeah, the world. 
well, I just heard yesterday a student of mine from from uh, the UK passed away. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's. I think it's going to start affecting people very personally, and and in a way, not not in as involved or complete a way, but I think it will start affecting the arts and and things as well of of the loss of people who have voices that could contribute that won't be able to. And I guess to to end our conversation, uh, how about on a positive, if you can find some uh, note to help people who are struggling as we have, have been talking about the kind of, you know, challenges we face during the, this pandemic, mm-hmm. what kind of words can you share? Well, um, if anything, try. I would hope that people are taking advantage of the time to, to learn, to explore, to, to discover new avenues of both politics and the arts, to, to listen to things in a different way, to, to find a movie, to find a singer and explore them in depth, to uh, find a political cause that can be supported, even if it's just postings on Facebook, as we talked about, or even if it's financial, whatever, if you're able to do that, that's great. But um, take advantage of the freedom of the time to kind of combat the restrictiveness of the time. Because rarely have we been told not to work. And so it's given us 8 to 12 hours a day to do other things. And granted, we have to do them at home. But certainly in this age of computers, internet, streaming, everything else, that it's practically the world at our feet in ways that it's never been before. Well said. Jerry Geddes, it's a pleasure this talking to you. flew by. It does. It does. Yeah. yeah. But it's great talking to you. Same here, and uh, people can check uh, out what you're doing, what you're thinking on Facebook. Uh, they could also Facebook, go Instagram, inst- yeah. and uh, it's G E D D E S, the last name, and yes. Jerry G E R R Y, the first name. Yes, and uh, look forward to hopefully soon seeing you at Pangea for one of the cabaret shows. Yes, and let me just tell everybody if they want to explore Sarah, Sarah Vaughn live in Japan is probably the quintessential revelation of her as a singer wonderful thank you thank you jerry okay thanks doc good talking to you take care all right bye-bye i feel pretty oh so pretty i feel pretty and witty and so pretty, I hardly can believe it's real. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel, and so pretty, I hardly can believe it's real. See that pretty girl in that mirror there? Who can that attractive girl be? Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress, such a pretty smile, such a pretty me. I feel stunning, oh so stunning. Feel like running and jumping for joy. For Anyone who isn't me
charming It's a lovely how charming I feel and so pretty I hardly can believe it's real See that pretty girl In that mirror there Who can that attractive girl be? Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress Such a pretty smile Such a pretty face I feel stunning Oh, so stunning You like running and jumping for joy For Lonesome Cowboy, Episode 2, performed by Dominic Azzarelli, recorded at the Old Brick Theatre in Scranton, Pennsylvania, courtesy of Diva Productions. I am the Lonesome Cowboy. I wasn't always a cowboy, however, roaming the range with my fateful canine companion, Petey. Oh no, the Lonesome Cowboy was once a semi-notorious gunslinger. I went by the name of the Near Miss Kid, and I sauntered from dance hall the dusty street looking for a reason to pull out my six-shooter, and I usually found one. I had many a close call. Unfortunately, I was not that good of a shot. After winging and wounding my opponents and barely surviving my gunfights, I came to the realization that I was powerless before the lure of the quick draw. I knew I had to quit the gunslinging life, and I knew how to do just that. I joined a group called Gunslingers Anonymous. Outside of town, we would gather around a campfire, drink bad coffee, and share our stories. Now, as our name states, we are supposed to be anonymous. So for the purpose of this tale, I'll use pseudonyms. We were a motley crew. Newark Nate, the nattiest of gunslingers, who always wore a boutonniere and smelled of eau de cologne and regret. Truth to tell, he should have been a haberdasher. Indecisive Ike, who, as in his moniker suggests, was not quite so quick on the draw. As a result, he got shot up a lot, and he was always wincing and limping from his unlucky encounters with better shooters. And there was the show tune slinger, who warbled a ditty as he drew his fancy firearm. He was an old odd fellow, but he could really carry a tune. We had our unofficial moderator, a grizzled coot called Conflicted Carl. He gave up gunslinging years ago, spent some time at the bottom of a bottle of hooch, briefly joined the free love cult, got religion, lost religion, got married, got unmarried, and finally found the Gunslingers Anonymous. Carl made the fire, brewed the bad coffee, and when he wasn't urging us to tell our st own stories, he held court with his sad but amusing tales. And his tales always had a moral. The moral was, give up the gun. Boys, he'd say, a gleam in his bloodshot eyes, until you give up the gun, you'll spend your life chasing something you'll never find. What's that, Carl? I'd query. Contentment, happiness, a reason for being. 
You think you found it in the grip of a gun? The thrill of a showdown? The fear you think you've inspired in others? But it's hollow, boys. You're following a phantom and you're running away from yourself. Carl could go on like that for quite a while. We'd shuffle our feet and stare into the fire and nod. One of us would get up to fill our empty cup with more bitter coffee and then Carl would fall silent and we'd all sit quietly for a while, lost in our own thoughts. That was usually the best part of the evening for me, sitting there with other pondering gunslingers, by myself with other suffering souls. Well, conflicted Carl and the others helped for a spell, but my fingers got to itching to pull a trigger. I yearned for mayhem, and I saddled up and headed to the next town, planning to confront any ordinary customer who happened to be in my way. I was in a foul mood as I rode that day. As I made my way into the main street of this sorry town, I spied two children leaning on a post, a boy playing a guitar, and a girl, his sister, I suppose, singing that heart-tugging tune, You Are My Sunshine. I stopped my horse and listened, and that song did all the talk, did what all the talk around the campfire wouldn't do or couldn't do. And I heard those words and something broke within me, and I was glad it did. I gave up the gunslinging, and then and there became the lonesome cowboy I am today. Please don't take my sunshine away. A young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. A boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. Laughed and kissed his mom and said, You're Billy Joe's a man. I can shoot as quick and straight as anybody can. But I wouldn't shoot without a cause, I'd gun nobody down. But she cried again as he rolled away. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town He sang a song as on he rode His guns hung at his hips He rode into a cattle town A smile upon his lips He stopped and walked into a bar And laid his money down But his mother's words echoed again don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He drank his first strong liquor then to calm his shaking hand and tried to tell himself at last he had become a man. A dusty cowpoke at his side began to laugh him down. 
And he heard again his mother's words Don't take your guns to town, son Leave your guns at home, Bill Don't take your guns to town Bill with rage, then Billy Joe reads for his gun to draw But the stranger drew his gun and fired before he even saw As Billy Joe fell to the floor, the crowd all gathered round And wondered at his final words Don't take your guns to town, son Leave your guns at home, Bill Don't take your guns to town Black Cosmic Friend. Holy cow, I am that which is lame, said the man in a beautiful house with a beautiful spouse, preoccupied with guilt and shame. Just the same, judgmental too. Are you the one to blame? But I like a can of beer with a cigarette and a good philosophical conversation with my black cosmic friend named Brett.
And there you have it, episode 366 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Jerry Geddes, Dr. Michael Pavis, our associate producer, actor extraordinaire Dominic Azzarelli, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, A. Swayze and the Ghosts, Jimmy Webb, Sarah Vaughn, Johnny Cash, Carmen McRae, of course, Brentford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourself. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one.